Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring but struggling to find diverse, talented candidates? Then we have something that can help, our job board. Head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to browse listings or to place your own. This week on the job board, the National Association of Counties is looking for a graphic designer in Washington, D.C. Bowling Green State University is looking for an assistant teaching professor in graphic design in Bowling Green, Ohio. GitHub is looking for a software engineer in their coding department who will work on code spaces, repositories, and pull requests. This is a remote position. Book of the Month is looking for a senior product designer in New York City. Coforma is looking for a UX designer slash researcher. This is a remote position. Bandcamp is looking for a user experience designer. This is a remote position. Strava is looking for a senior production designer in San Francisco, California. Ithaca in Ann Arbor, Michigan is looking for a senior quality software engineer as well as a user researcher for their search and discovery team. Both positions are remote. And Sovos is looking for a UX designer in Boulder, Colorado. For just $99, you can post your job listing with us where it will be on our job board for 30 days and we'll spread the word for you about your job to our diverse audience of listeners. We also offer annual job board subscriptions. Make sure to head over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs for more info on these listings. Apply today and tell them you heard about the job through Revision Path. Get started with us and expand your job search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. And before we get into this week's interview, I just want to remind you once again about Recognize, which is our design anthology featuring voices from designers of color and indigenous designers. Submissions are still open. They're going to close on May 2nd at 5 o'clock p.m. Eastern. I'm mentioning this because sometimes what ends up happening with Recognize is that people don't submit until maybe the last two or three days of the submission period. And I'm here to tell you, don't do that. (laughs) If you're sitting on your submission and you're just waiting until the last minute, please go ahead and submit it now so you can make sure you get it in before the deadline. It's going to be May 2nd at 5 o'clock p.m. Eastern. Now, if you're curious about what Recognize is, it's again, it's a design anthology where we basically have design commentary, design critique, etc. But it's from designers of color and indigenous designers. Each year we have a specific theme for the anthology. This year's theme is Reboot. And we're accepting essays of 3,000 words or less that fit this theme. Now, if this sounds like something you'd like to be a part of, visit recognize.design for more information and to submit your essay today. Now let's take some time out and thank our accessibility sponsor for this episode, Brevity & Wit. Brevity & Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They accomplish this through graphic design, presentations, and workshops around IDEA, Inclusion, Diversity, Equity, and Accessibility. 
If you're curious to learn how to combine a passion for IDEA with design, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit, creative excellence without the grind. All right, let's get to this week's interview. My guest this week is Steens, an award-winning cartoonist in St. Louis, Missouri. Let's start the show. My name is Steens, and I'm a cartoonist and editor and professor of comics. How has the year been going for you so far? So far, like, you know, we're still in the pandemic, so we're doing the best we can on that front. But in terms of work, pretty good. Still working on Heart of the City, as well as my new graphic novel. We just started the production on that. Tell me about Heart of the City. What's it about? So Heart of the City is a comic strip that had been going on since 1999. So the original creator, Mark Tatuli, he wrote it back then and had been doing the art for it and writing for it for the following 21 years or so. And so he decided to retire and the syndicate, Andrews McNeil, decided to, instead of retiring the entire comic, to get a new artist and take the story to a new place for 2020. Heart is about a young girl named Heart Lamar who lives with her single mom in Philly. And so the stories are about her and her friends' lives as they grow up through middle school. And how has it been inheriting such a a well-known comic like that? It was super intimidating to begin with. Just because, you know, if you pick up something that's been going on for 20 years, that's a long time to kind of, you know, make a name for yourself and really put in the backstory into a comic. And so it was intimidating to kind of jump on and and start anew, especially since my background was like traditional comics, like single issue comics and graphic novels and not so much syndicated comic strips, which are definitely a bit more you have dimensions that you have to work with. You have types of terms of phrase that you can work with. So it was definitely a lot to get used to at the very beginning. But thankfully, my editor, she had a lot of confidence in me and uh, rightly so, because I ended up getting on the train pretty quickly. So I didn't really have anything to worry about <laughs> in terms of actually doing comic strips. Well, that's good. I mean, I think it's one thing to kind of slip into something that's kind of well known and has sort of a already has like an environment built around it and trying to kind of discover that as you go. But I'm curious, Mm -hmm. how have readers been taking it? How's what's their reception been like? Yeah, it's a little hard to tell. Syndicated comics, the way they work, typically, you don't really see them going one and done. They usually are comics that last for a very long time and usually the creator is the same for a very long time and it was the same thing for Mark Tatuli you know 20 years and so the fan base is definitely not one to greet change very nicely I guess is the best way to put it you know when you work with a graphic novel or a single issue comic there are so many ways and avenues for someone to read your book whether they picked it up from a comic book store or Barnes and Noble to whether a teacher recommended it or a friend recommended it whether they read it right when it came out or years after and you know you always have so many different kinds of people to tell you this is what they thought of the book whether it's on panels or over Twitter or anything like that but when it comes to syndicated comics because They are so specifically in newspapers. Really, the only way for you to read it is if you are reading the 
the newspaper that has purchased that comic or if you are reading it on gocomics.com, which doesn't really have a very well-moderated comment section. And so like I was saying Mm. about the fans who are not very welcoming to change, that's pretty much where you're going to see that. So I don't usually go on to Go Comics because why head towards negativity, right? But I'm not really sure what people think of it. I, you know, occasionally, you know, someone will come up and, and say like, oh, this is really good. Or I really like this arc. And that's really nice to hear. But I think I'm going to find out more what people think about it when it's collected and more widely available. That's a good idea. Never read the comment section. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. It's just like, it's so strange because the kinds of things that they had issues with was not even like in terms of storytelling. It's just because I'm not Mark Tatuli, you know, mm. there weren't even any like real issues people had except for the fact that I wasn't him. Yeah. Now, some of the other titles and, and comics that you've worked on uh, include Rolled and Told, mm-hmm. Witchy, Archival Quality, Quincredible. What do you sort of remember the most from each of those titles? Well, they're all very, very different in that how I, I'm attached to them. So Rolled and Told, Witchy, Quincredible, those are all books that I've edited. So my okay. connection to those are in the form of I need to get the story out in the most effective way possible so that the not just the writer is happy, but also it is an entertaining read for people. Meanwhile, Archival Quality was the first graphic novel that I did with my co-creator, Ivy Noel Weir. And that, you know, it took us many, many years to complete as graphic novels do. So I also had a, a huge hand in creating these characters and creating their mannerisms and how they interact with each other in addition to, you know, the storytelling that Ivy brought to it. So you know, it's just an entirely different process. And I definitely feel a lot closer to archival quality than I do to the other books for that reason. So with some of the the work that you're doing now, you're kind of, it sounds like you work in different, different roles. Sometimes you're editing, mm-hmm. sometimes you're creating. Let's yeah. say from the creation process, like say you've got mm-hmm. an idea for, I don't know, a comic or a strip or something like that. What does that process look like to go from start to finish? I think it really depends on if it is something that's longer or something that's relatively short. For example, so the other night, my husband and I, we have been watching the Riddick uh, universe movies because we love them. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking as I saw him like working the next day that he was like on the Riddick IMDb page. And so in my head, I was like, he's still thinking about Riddick. And later in the day, my husband was like, you know, I've been thinking about when Riddick 4 comes out and I'm just like, I need to know when we're going to see it. And then he reminded me of this meme that's going around where this woman is in bed with her husband and she's like, I bet he's thinking about other women. And in his head is like, whatever the punchline is, is what he's actually thinking about. And so I was like, wouldn't it be funny if I did a comic where we're sitting in bed and my head is, I bet he's thinking about Chronicles of Riddick 2004. And the punchline is, Kia is thinking, when does Riddick 4 come out? So it's like, on the one hand, a lot of my jokey strips come from just conversations that I have with my husband or things that I see online and I kind of want to make a joke about or a situation that I thought was hilarious and wanted to share with others 
Meanwhile, if it's something for like Heart of the City, I think about an entire storyline. Okay, so like if they're going to theater camp, what's something that they're going to get out of going to theater camp? What is Heart going to get out of it? And so then I think, okay, well, if she's going to get an idea of like knowing when to stand up for something versus when to, you know, how to pick your battles and how can I show that kind of story? And then I just kind of break it down further and further and further to how does this story get played out? Which part of the story is going to be my Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday? And then also remembering how am I going to make sure that this punchline is delivered as well? Because, you know, for the most part, comic strips do have to be funny as well. So it really just depends if it's something longer, if it's something short. I just kind of wait for inspiration to come <laughs> pretty much. Mm-hmm. I'm just thankful that I get inspired by a lot of different things. You know, I have a lot of different hobbies. I watch a lot of different types of media. I play all different kinds of games. I read all kinds of books. So I think I'm, I'm always going to have something to pull from when I'm creating these stories, whether it's real life or other people's creations. It's interesting that, I don't know, decomposition is a part of the process, like to start yeah, with something sure. bigger and then break it down because it almost feels like yep. it would be the opposite that's what most people think but i always say that work smarter not harder you know that's very scrooge thing to say scrooge mcduck thing to say but it's true because <laughs> if your idea is this you know magnum opus of a story that spans hundreds of years and goes across all space and time where do you begin so you have to deconstruct to even find a starting point so usually when i'm working with my students or with clients, I really like to get to the base of the story. You know, I know you want to tell a story about this witch and her interactions with her brother, but what's the conflict? Who is the person? Let's get down to like the bare, bare bones and get it as deconstructed as possible. And then we can build on top of that. Because if you go the other way around, what you're going to do is you're going to fill in the space with things that you think will solve plot holes, but you don't get that problem if you start small and add on to it because you can always go back and say, well, if I add this, how's it going to interact with everything else that I've already created? It's yeah. just so much easier to start smaller and go bigger than the other way around. Great advice. I like that. That's, that's really good. So you're based in St. Louis. Is that where you grew yeah. up also? So I was actually born in Detroit and uh, we moved into St. Louis when I was around 10 years old. So I did go to high school in St. Louis and that's pretty much all you need in order for anyone from here to know that, Oh, you're from St. Louis. <laughs> <laughs> Is St. Louis like a big comic city? Yes and no, I guess we don't really have like a comic convention that comes to the city that isn't wizard world, but wizard world is like great value conventions. Like it's oh, wow. <laughs> wizard world could be a lot better than it is, but there was a lot of comic book stores here. There are a lot of creators here. You know, Marie Inger lives here. Matt Kent, Colin Bunn, Brian Hurt. You know, there's a lot of creators that, that are here in the St. Louis greater area. So I always felt like I had something to go to, whether it was Ink and Drink or a collective to, you know, put out comics with or drawing groups. So I never felt like I didn't have that sort of thing. The only thing that St. Louis lacked was like corporate quote unquote jobs around comics. You know, there wasn't mm -hmm. a publisher for me to work at, or there wasn't in New York, there's like publishers on every corner. And when you have a very specific 
industry like comic books, you know, they're just not going to be in every single city. So yes and no for St. Louis. Yes and no. You know, it's interesting, you know, as kids, we're exposed to so much like animation and comics and cartoons Mm -hmm. and everything. When did you start making comics? I didn't start making comics until I was like an adult. I was like 20. One okay twenty when I started making comics because that was never an option for me not because I I didn't think it was something I couldn't do it was something that never occurred to me and when you don't see something you just don't believe it you know like if someone's like why don't you be a comic book creator it's like what what other like black women comic book creators are there you know especially when you're like nine years old and you're yeah. watching like Justice League. The idea that that's something you could do growing up just isn't there unless you see it. And I never saw it, you know, which is why I didn't even go to a comic book store until I was an adult as well. I didn't really believe that they existed because I never saw them where I lived. So I started my interest in fandoms and comics industry. Like I really, really loved superhero comics. I loved reading standalone graphic novels. I was hugely into manga growing up as well. That sort of thing has always been a part of my life. I don't think I remember the first purchase that I could have ever made like on my own was choosing which shoes I wanted to buy at Payless. And I chose the Sailor Moon shoes. So like on the Mm. one hand, I've always been attached to entertainment. But on the other hand, it was never something that I considered as a career until I dropped out of college and I saw people doing it. Speaking of college, and I don't know, maybe you just answer my question by mentioning that you (laughs) dropped out, but what was it like there? You went to to Maryville University of St. Louis. Yeah, I mean, I like the college experience. You know, I like not living with my parents and getting drunk and like meeting new people and figuring (laughs) out who I am as a person. That's the college experience. But did it prepare me for Comics? No. Mm. (laughs) I mean, I would say it prepared me for nothing. (laughs) I think with with college, you really need to know what you want before you go. So many kids, they're like 16, 17, 18 years old when they're told to go to college and figure out a career for the rest of their lives, but they don't even know who they are. So, and when you're that young, you don't even know what the right questions are to ask. I was in the art department and I knew that I liked drawing and I liked reading comics and the question of what do I do with this? How do I succeed at this? What can I do with my talents? Like those sort of questions you just don't know to ask when you're that young. I went because I was supposed to go. That's what you do when you graduate high school in the suburbs, you go to college. And that's what I did. But as I went and as it was getting more and more expensive and I don't come from money. So like it was all financial aid and and figuring out what I could afford. And at a point it was like, this is getting too expensive for me to pay on my own. And they're not really helping me with any sort of direction. So I'm leaving. Like, what's what's the point of me staying here? So that's when I just got into the, the industry and just started working. So I was working at Victoria's Secret. I was working at a Hallmark store. I was working at all these different part-time jobs just to, like, make ends meet. Mm-hmm. And eventually, I ended up getting a job at the local comic book store. And that's where things started to take a turn was when I was more exposed to creators and the actual process of creating comics and selling comics. And, you know, I was in comics retail for four years. I was a manager there. So I learned a lot about how to sell a comic and what sort of things you need in order to be successful in the comics industry. And so that all of that 
knowledge was there. And that's where I got it from the actual job of, of being in a, a comic shop. So no, college did not help. Not that it, it can't help because, you know, I do teach <laughs> cartooning at college mm-hmm. until we get to a point where college is not a money farm. I don't know if we're going to find a lot of programs that are appropriately preparing kids for the real world. Yeah. You know, the fact that a lot of colleges don't have a mandatory, this is how you do taxes course tells me enough. Mm-hmm. So hopefully, you know, when people are going back to school or they finally decided that they do want to get that education, if they decide to get it, Webster University, you'll have me as a professor and I'll teach you the basics of cartooning. But for for me, it was I had to be hands on because that's all that there was. Yeah. That's a great point about knowing what it is that you want to do once you sort of get to college. Like for mm-hmm. me, like I, I went to an, an HBCU, I went to Morehouse. And even when yeah. I was choosing my major, like initially I went because I had a scholarship and I was yeah. going to do computer science, computer engineering and started out doing it, but really wanted to make websites. And I remember mm-hmm. my advisor telling me, like, if this is what you want to do, you need to change your major because the Internet mm-hmm. is a fad. I should mention this was in, I should mention this was in 1999. So the internet like literally like just was starting to become a thing and people really didn't know the depth or breadth of what could be done on the internet. And I switched majors to something that I liked, which was math, which probably sounds weird to say, but I went, (laughs) I went all through, through college and majored in math. But by the time I graduated, I had nothing lined up at all because I didn't want to go to graduate school, which was really the only thing that my, my major was sort of preparing me for was to like Mm -hmm. be a professional, not a professional mathematician, but to at least go to graduate school. That was like the next stop. And I'm like, yeah, I don't want to do that. I, I did 12 years of school plus four years of this, I'm done with school right now. And they're like, Oh, well, good luck. Like there was nothing, there was nothing to do. Like I also did a bunch of just like retail jobs and customer service jobs before Mm -hmm. I ended up falling into my first sort of design position, you know, and even then, yeah, it was sort of your, you learn on the job because unfortunately you didn't really, you know, like pick it up in college. So, I mean, you also learn what you like by finding out what you don't like. You Ain't know? that the truth? Like, <laughs> I mean, when I was in school, the art program was studio art, graphic design, or interior design. I yeah. knew for sure I wasn't interested in interior design. And I didn't know if I was interested in graphic design because all I knew is that I like to draw and I like to use a tablet to do it. So does that mean I need to get into like graphic design since they focus on digital work while studio art focuses on gallery art? And so I went to graphic design thinking, well, this is probably the right direction since I use a digital tablet to draw my comics, you know, like, or my, my illustrations. Right. And then I get there and it's just like, oh, this is all just like working for somebody else. This looks like shit. I don't want to do this at all. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so I went back to studio art, but now that I'm back in the studio art, it's like, how am I supposed to be using my digital illustration in this course that is trying to teach me watercolor and oil paint, which I like, it's fine, but it is not what I wanted to do for the rest of my life, you know? Yeah. So yeah, that's why I think it's so important for people to actually just go out and work. Like, Everyone needs to do at least one retail job, one food service job so that, A, we know how to treat people who take those jobs. Mm -hmm. And then also so that you can find out, is this something that you're passionate about? What did you like about being in retail? What did you like about working in food service? Because, you know, what I liked about being in retail was to be able to actually hear what someone wants and to help them get what they want to get. So, like, while I may have been 
a beauty lead at Victoria's Secret. Yes, cool. I learned about makeup, but I also found out what people wanted to see when they put on makeup, what they're looking for when it comes to their skincare, you know, actually having those conversations with people and figuring out what they needed. And I think that sort of thing led me towards being a better editor and, and teacher because I can actually hear what people are saying and figure out what are you getting? What are you not getting? What can I help you with? So in a way, it's like even the jobs that you don't think are going to be stepping stones, you know, to your your future. They are. Everything you do matters, which is why I'm like, so be careful when it comes to taking out life altering loans. (laughs) (laughs) I tell people sometimes that your expertise is sometimes a sum of your experiences. Like it may not necessarily just be, oh, I went to this school, then this school and that. Like it's a lot of things, you know, just like you mentioned, you know, it's food service, it's retail, it's, it's things outside of what you think you want to do that end up informing Mm -hmm. kind of your overall view of what it is that you want to do. So, and then everything moves forward as well. So like I was doing four years at comics retail. And so, yes, I had experience with retail management, but I also had experience with books and learning about the bicep codes and the reason things are, you know, produced a certain way so that they fit on shelves, that information and, you know, knowing about doing events for the store, that's community event building, that's event organization, all of that information helped me be a better librarian. All of my information about being a librarian helped me to be a better marketing person at a publisher. All of that marketing knowledge, all that library knowledge, all that retail knowledge helped me be a better editor because I knew what was already out there and what works and what doesn't work and why. So it's like, Everything that you do leads to something else. You just have to kind of trust the process that things will work out, you know? Yeah. So eventually you ended up working for a a comic book, a publishing company. But in 2019, you struck out on your own as a cartoonist. Talk to me about that. Yeah. So that was like really scary <laughs> because, you know, when you're used to getting a, an income from like, you know, a W-2, <laughs> you know, stable income, it's kind of scary to have to be your own boss. So that is something that I always want to tell people that it is not not going to be scary. Like it's okay to be stressed because it's stressful. When you are a freelancer, there's a lot of stuff you have to take care of. But I knew that there were certain things that I wanted to do. I was talking to my, well, I consider her my editorial mentor. I don't know if she knows it, but She was saying, you know, what's something that you want to do when you wake up in the morning? You know, what's something that you know that you want to do every day? Not a job title, not a company you work for. What's something you want to do? And so I said, I want to make comics. I want to continue to edit comics because I love helping people bring their visions to life. And I also want to teach because, you know, I've done a bunch of different kinds of workshops and getting people to understand comics. But the reason I want to teach is because I want to open that door for more people to get into the industry because it is so difficult. And she was like, then that's what you need to do. That's what you need to find a way to make lucrative so that you can keep a roof over your head and work that way. Uh And so I first started off by doing editorial pitches. I was helping people with their pitch PDFs and giving them editorial feedback on not just the story, but also the entire pitch as a whole. And so for the first part of my freelance 
life was that, you know, last half of 2019 was a lot of that, doing a ton of editorial for small publishers, for individuals, for for groups who were working on magazines, and then also doing comics for magazines, illustrations for, you know, businesses. So I was doing a lot of things that I was kind of already doing while I was working at the publisher and while I was working at the library. But now they've just kind of moved into the forefront. And I've just been doing even more of that. Because there is a lot of stuff that I would turn down because I was busy. You know, I had a job. (laughs) I can't just say yes to every creative endeavor that comes to me. But Also, I didn't know if that's what I wanted. You know, when I was working at the library and when I was working as an an editor, I loved it. I love editing comics. I loved helping people. And I did not ever think, man, the the goal for me is to to be my own boss. That was never my goal. Mm. (laughs) I was like, if I can find a way to get a steady pay in for the rest of my life and I can still make comics on the side, that would be ideal. So... Yeah, it was never my goal to just be a freelancer because that's a lot of work and I don't like doing a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in the in the nicest way possible. When I finally started doing freelance, it was a lot. It was very hard and I'm really thankful that, you know, I have an agent and I've been able to get so many different opportunities from, you know, not just illustration but editorial opportunities and I even, you know, had someone say, hey, I can't teach this class at Webster because he got a promotion. And so because of his promotion, he couldn't teach one of the classes, the cartooning class at Webster. And he saw that I had a a lot more free time now. And he reached out to me and he said, would you want to teach the cartooning class? And so that's how I ended up with my job at, at Webster University, which is Another thing that they don't tell you in school is that, you know, you don't have to go to school to be a college professor. You just need to have the experience. And so now that's what I do. I teach cartooning and I I edit freelance and then I also do my art as well. So, yeah, let's talk about Webster University and your class. Tell me about it. Yeah. So I teach cartooning, which is the class you have to take before comic book making. So it is a prerequisite course. You learn about the basics, basics, basics of comics. I mean, we're talking about simplifying your illustrations to one panel comics, to silent comics, to strip comics. And um, not only do I teach them the basics and the fundamentals of cartooning, but I also teach them tools that they'll need to succeed in the future. So whether it's taxes or a little bit of knowledge about copyright law, just those kinds of things that will help them when they get out there. I just, anytime I think about my college experience, I just get so mad that I wasn't prepared more. And so I do the best I can to prepare them for what I can uh, whenever we have the time in between big sections in my class. What do your students teach you? Man, honestly, like how to be funnier. (laughs) (laughs) I think, like, I honestly, like, I laugh so much, not like at my students, but like with my students, because they're just like, I don't know, it's nice to see young creatives, because they have not yet been brought down by the world. (laughs) Mm. You know, fair. Yeah. And, you know, it's like kind of depressing to say it, but that's what it is. So many times during the you know, the finals, which is to create an like a, a 10 strip 
booklet. So it'll have 10 comics. They have an overarching theme. They're individually can stand on their own, but they all kind of go together. With that project, I find so many fascinating stories, so many different styles, so many ways to storytell that it's nice to know that the knowledge is all there. It's easy for anyone to make comics if they put their mind to it. So there's so many students that come in and like, you know, I can't draw or I don't know if I have the right tools to make a a comic book. And I just want to be like, you're starting too far ahead. You know, just think Mm. about storytelling. Think about what makes you laugh. Think about how words interact with images. That kind of baseline thinking is all you need to make comics. And if you slow down and and you put your sights right, you can create some pretty incredible stuff without even realizing it. I've read some comics that I just like loved and no, they were not like Michelangelo's David in terms of, you know, illustration, (laughs) but it didn't have to be. And that's one of the best parts about comics is you don't have to know how to draw, like be an incredible draftsman. You don't have to have created comics for 20 years to be able to make comics and I'm reminded of that every time I, I teach. I can imagine, you know, like you say, what I sort of get from this conversation with you so far is that you really have this immense capacity for helping people. Yeah. And like you said, you know, you really love to make people kind of bring their vision to life. Mm-hmm. And so I can see how teaching would be sort of a natural extension of that. Yeah. I mean, I want someone, I want someone to walk away with something when they finish their interaction with me. So if I'm teaching them comics, I want them to be able to walk away feeling a little more confident that they could make comics. Or if I am editing them, I want them to walk away feeling like they're a better writer before or after they've worked with me than they were before. You know, if someone's reading my comics, I want them to walk away with, that was kind of funny and gave me like an iota of happiness for a half second. And, you know, so it's just like, I want people to to get something out of things because I guess it may just be my history of like going to school and feeling like I wasted a lot of time because I didn't really have a direction. That's why like I always feel like I need to make sure that you get something out of this, you yeah. know, especially if you're a student, especially if you go to, to any college, they're not cheap. Like if you get a scholarship, that's great, but they are not cheap. You cannot deny how much money people are putting into these schools. And so I want to make sure that they get something out of it because there is nothing that infuriates me more than people wasting their money. (laughs) Now, one thing that, you know, I've, I've mentioned before we started recording that I've had a few cartoonists and artists and such on the, on the show before. And something that we always kind of end up talking about in some respect is representation, which Mm -hmm. I think something it's, it's a huge thing right now. I think, especially as people look at, comics and animation not as a juvenile thing but it's just another Mm -hmm. medium to tell stories Mm -hmm. it feels like representation always sort of comes into that conversation particularly within the past i don't know year or so that the larger world has woken up to the fact that black lives matter and all this sort of stuff yeah do you ever feel like that you have to sort of quote-unquote represent in the work that you do no i feel like i have to just represent myself yeah. And the more the more authentic I am, the better that is for younger people who look to me. Because when I was growing up, 
I'm sure we have a similar, anyone that, that likes like anime and manga mm-hmm. <laughs> or like punk music or alt style, like that sort of thing oftentimes isn't really embraced in black families. For me, it's really nice to be my authentic self so that people who do not feel like they are enough or doing the right things the right way to show that their way is the right way. There's always this question of like, well, I don't know if I'm black enough because I don't listen to X, Y, Z, or I read manga a lot or whatever. And it's like, that's not the way it has to be. You know, like, are you black? Yes. Do you read manga? Yes. Okay, well, then you are a black manga reader. So I think for me, I'm not really trying to represent blackness as a whole. I'm trying to represent authenticity and knowing that who you are is who you are. And that's why you are who you are. I don't know. I know that sounds crazy, (laughs) (laughs) but I mean, I don't know. I want people to, to feel okay in their, their own skin. And oftentimes that happens when you see authentic stories. And so for me, if someone is like, for example, one of the, the strips that I did for heart of the city was Charlotte and Dean are supposed to be watching the stream of the street fighter competition. And she forgot that she had wash day on Sunday. So she's got to like get her hair done all while holding up her phone so that she could still watch the stream so that she can <laughs> have something to talk about. So the story was just like really cute where she's like, mom, watch gently. And she's like trying to get her hair blow dried. And she's like, Oh, I can't believe that guy isn't even blocking. You know, she's just like being herself. She's doing yeah. things that are the things that she likes to do. She likes to watch street fighter competitions and she's also black, which means she also has to do wash day every once in a while. And so when you do that sort of storytelling, it shows people who are not black that we are just like everybody else. Yes, we have these cultural things that we must do like wash day, but also you can catch me watching Twitch to see who's doing the best when it comes to street fighter. I think it's important to just be yourself, be authentic. And that is enough to show people that there's more than the stereotypes. There's more than the box that you think you have to be in. Yeah, that's a good point. I like that. I need a wash day myself, actually, now that I'm thinking about it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. I've been like just putting gel to like hold it back. So I'm like, hold on, guys. I just. (laughs) Yeah, I've been holding off because I'm like, do I want to do this in the middle of the week or do I want to wait till the weekend? Oh, it's it's a pain. But if you do it in the weekend, then you feel like you wasted a large part of your weekend. (laughs) That's true. That's true. I don't know. I'll figure it out anyway. (laughs) (laughs) We always do. (laughs) Yeah. So do you have like a, a dream project that you would love to do one day or that you would love to work on? Yes. So I actually started on this dream project and I believe that's what got me in my job at, as heart of the city. I want to do a retelling of Encyclopedia Brown as a comic. Do you remember that book? <gasps> okay. Up? First of all, yes. I am very much of the mind that Encyclopedia Brown is black. Very much so. I mean, his first name is Leroy. <laughs> so I'm like, come on. <laughs> He's got to be black, but but no, go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. So I want to do Encyclopedia Brown. And when I, back in, you know, 2019, when I had all this free time, (laughs) (laughs) I literally was like, I have no excuse for not doing this mini comic. Like I have no excuse at all. It was before I was too busy. I got work. I'm too tired. But now it's like, what are you waiting for? 
Mm-hmm. What are you waiting for? So I just made a mini comic where I took one of Encyclopedia Brown's stories. And the only thing that I changed was that Encyclopedia Brown was a black girl. Mm. And they kept everything else. So like their turn of phrase definitely still sounds like they're like in the 60s, even though they're like dressed like today. So I was kind of like leaning towards that whole Romeo plus Juliet, Boz Borman style where it's like it's current, but they're also using like older turn of phrase. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so I made that mini comic and I loved it. And it was so much fun. And I want to be able to do like a, a full book of those. But I sold that mini comic at SPX and at SPX was the editor of Heart of the City. And she saw that. And I think the me showing, you know, the retellings and the reimaginings that I really, really love to do. Once I actually did them because I love to do them, people saw them and they saw that the heart went into it and Mm -hmm. it led to bigger and better things. So, yeah, my goal is to make an Encyclopedia Brown comic. I definitely want to do that. I also have a a comic that's been on the back burner for a while. It's a comic about how to buy a house as a freelancer, which is super, super important because it's hard out there. And it's especially hard when you're in the creative field and you're trying to prove to people that you're like legit and you actually make money. Yeah. So that's another thing. (laughs) I've got all sorts of, of comic goals and whatnot, but I'm working on a graphic novel right now. I have to. Uh, pace myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think both of those ideas are great. I mean, I would love to see that that retelling of Encyclopedia Brown. And actually, even as you mentioned that kind of how-to comic, it sort of reminded me of um of like these sort of comic explainers that you see. Like I see them sometimes on the nib or like yeah. on similar types of, of publications. And those yeah. are, are super helpful. Like, I mean, I, love that stuff. I, I was That's a freelancer. Like favorite things. Yeah, I was a freelancer for a long time and renting. And I'm, I mean, I'm still renting now. But, you know, I do at one point want to have my own like, separate little studio space, whether that's a house or whatever. And like, yeah, it'll be good to kind of know what that process is like. And now as comics and things are being seen as more of a medium to tell stories, that's a great way to do it. Yeah, for sure. And I think those are the kinds of things that I really like to do. I mean, I like telling like goofy one-off stories, but the nonfiction stuff is the stuff that really like excites me because I get to like really break down information in an easy to understand way. That's the goal is to make it so that it's easy for anybody to be able to do because it can be done. You just have to know the information. And for you, if you want to buy a house, the best advice that I could give you is to, once you decide you want to buy a house, give yourself two years before you apply. Because the first thing that a loan person is going to want to see is that you have stable income from the past two years. Mm -hmm. So if that's getting all your 1099s together, making sure you're completely organized when it comes to the money coming in and the money going out. If you do that for two years straight, and have all of the records for it, getting a loan for a house is not going to be hard for you. It's really all about keeping track of all of your information. So think about that. Good information. Thank you for that tip. Yeah. On a personal level, like what have comics really done for you? I think it has helped me figure out who I am, like as a person, you know, as we've been talking about, like how much I really enjoy helping people and getting their stories out and making things easy and simple and giving the information away like that, all that kind of stuff. I don't think I would have learned any of that without comics. 
So I think knowing what, what I think my master goal, my, my reason for being here, I think, I don't know if I would have figured that out if I didn't have comics. Mm. What would you say has been the best advice that you've been given about what you do? It could be about just life in general. It could be about comics in general, anything like that. Yeah. Well, as someone who is, had always been very anxious about what sort of projects I should or shouldn't take on based on whether it was good for my career or whether it was the right step. You know, there was always a lot of anxiety about which direction should I be going and what direction is the right way. And a friend of mine, Shivana Sukdeo, who is a designer, she said that everything that you do is a stepping stone to where you're going to be. But you do not need to step on every stone to get there. And I think that made me a little less anxious about opportunities, about trying new things, about saying no to things, about passing on things. Because when you're a freelancer, saying no or passing on something means you're not going to get that money. And so your first thought is, okay, well, where else am I going to get that money? But if it really feels like something that you don't want to do, if it feels like something that's going to make you really anxious or take up a lot of your time or be hard on you physically, then then don't do it because there will be another chance for you to get that money. So just knowing that I don't have to say yes to every single thing that comes my way in order to be successful has helped with that anxiety, freelancer anxiety. What advice would you give to anyone out there that's listening to this? They're your story is like resonating with them and they want to sort of follow in your footsteps. I would say keep very organized records, whether that's getting an external hard drive, investing in a printer and a file cabinet, keep good records. And that isn't just like records of boring work stuff. I mean, records of things that have made you happy, records of letters that you have get received. I think it's really important to always have those records so that if you want, you can go back to them and you can look at those and you can feel those feelings again. I always think about memento mori. <laughs> you know, we, we're all going to pass this mortal coil, but while we are here, we should be able to reminisce on the things that were and also the things that you want in the future. So keeping those records, what have you done? What do you want to do? What are you doing currently? Sometime in the future, you're going to want to look back on it. I don't know when, and I don't know for what reason, but you will. And you'll be happier knowing that you have those somewhere. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? Like, it's 2026. All this pandemic mm. stuff is behind us. Like, where do you see yourself? What kind of work do you yeah. want to be doing? Well, by 2026, my second book will be out and as well as my collection of Heart of the City. So I hope that I'm filthy rich and <laughs> on an <laughs> island of my own with a diamond suit. Now, um, I don't know what I'm going to be doing in the next five years. I mean, I like what I'm doing right now. Um, I would really like for this pandemic to be over so that I could continue to do what I like right now, which is traveling for conventions, meeting new people. Traveling for conventions is, is such a huge part of the comics industry that I really, 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 really want it to come back. But 
five years from now, hopefully doing the same stuff because I'm pretty happy with what I'm doing right now. Maybe I'll have even more mentees and new students that can uh, take my advice and and I'd like to see them succeed as well. So doing what I'm doing now, I'm pretty happy. <laughs> well, just to you know, kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and your work and everything mm-hmm. online? So you can find me on social media as Steens. that's O-H-E-Y Steens. You can find me on Twitter, on Instagram, TikTok, and then if you want to reach out to me for work, my email is ohasteens at gmail. And then also my website is ohasteens.com. I like to keep things simple. So it's the same across the board. <laughs> but yeah, that's where you can look me up and find me. I'll be there. All right. Sounds good. Well, Steens, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show for really, I mean, one, sharing your story, but also really putting forth, you know, like I said, you know, earlier in the interview, I really get the sense that you really love helping people. And that's something that definitely I got from listening to more about your background, hearing what you do with teaching, even what you're doing with like helping, you know, with editing and things of that nature. It definitely feels like comics is like a calling for you. And it's a way for you to kind of tell stories to the world. So I'm glad to be able to interview you and to share your story with our audience. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. You're so welcome. Thank you for having me. Big, big thanks to Steens. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Steens and her work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. And of course, thanks to our wonderful sponsor, Brevity and Wit. Brevity and Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They accomplish this through graphic design, presentations, and workshops around IDEA, Inclusion, Diversity, Equity, and Accessibility. If you're curious to learn how to combine a passion for IDEA with design, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit, creative excellence without the grind. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by R.J. Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. What did you think of the interview? Better yet, what do you think about the podcast overall? Actually, we have an audience survey coming up, so... I am going to be asking that again. (laughs) But anyway, I don't want you to be a stranger. If you're listening to this podcast and you want to get in touch, please reach out to us. Hit us up on Twitter or Instagram. Just search for Revision Path or leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Let the world know about Revision Path because it really helps us grow and help reach more people all around the world. As always, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time. (laughs) 